Thank you. Uh, General Hudson, Marsha, members of the uh, museum staff, I uh, would like to say thanks for the opportunity to come and speak to you this evening. Um, this museum has a wonderful portfolio of exhibits. They're very professionally done, um, and they're, and they're uh, very informative and always entertaining, and it's always a lot of fun for me to come. I've been back, back here off and on over uh, several, year, several times over my career in the Air Force, and it's, uh, it's always good, good to be back, and I do appreciate the invitation. Um, I want to talk about the Battle of Britain tonight, um, and this is based on some research I did on a book uh, with Bob Lightsey a few years ago. I, I'm one of those guys like your Civil War buffs, and I'm, I'm a guy, uh, uh, Battle of Britain buff, if you will. And so this is the kind of uh, thing that I like to do. And so there were, um, the Battle of Britain is, uh, is, is a uh, period in time which I think was really rich in aviation history. There were a lot of beautiful airplanes. A lot of uh, elegant technology took place at that time. A lot of interesting decisions there, and uh, and, and really a significant, profound outcome from that. Um, there's uh, if you're an aviate, if you're interested in aviation and beautiful airplanes, you got a lot of that during uh, during the course of the battle. I think that the reason, the thing that has uh, caused me to have the most interest in it is because there are so many innovations that were uh, took place during the Battle of Britain. Uh, in fact, the foundations, I think, of modern air warfare, a lot of them t uh, started right here with the Battle of Britain. You can see there's a number of things uh, oops, sorry, number of things here that we still do today. It was the first use of radar, netted air defenses, ground control intercepts, electronic warfare, um, incendiary bullets, night radar intercepts, a whole bunch of things that we do now that really had to start there and they were brought to uh, pr uh, production level quality, if you will. Um, the reason that I, uh, the idea that I got for this book came, came from three ex experiences that I had uh, during my time in the Air Force. One of them was reading this poem that I'm sure a lot of you have seen. It was, uh, dates back to the Middle Ages. Uh, and the whole idea of this was that you can have something as insignificant as a nail there and can lead to a chain of events there that can have a really catastrophic um, uh, result. And this is kind of the foundation of aircraft accident investigation. I, did a little, I had a chance to do a little bit of that in my career. During the, uh, what you always try to find out is what are the cause, you know, if the, after an aircraft accident happens, what, are the ch what is the chain of events that led up to that thing and where are the places where somebody could have stepped in there and done something different and uh, caused a different outcome? And that's kind of what this poem gets, up, gets into. Um, the second experience I had was, or the second experience I had was based on, on the book, a movie Field of Dreams. And William Kinsella in that uh, book said, um, Hardly anybody recognizes the most significant moments of their life at the time that they happen. And I always thought that that was pretty interesting because if you think about it, most of the times you look back over your life, this happened and that sort of turned my life around and this happened and I either did this or I didn't do that. And because of that, something in my life took a, a whole different change. And I think that happens a lot in military history as well as, as uh, uh, just regular history in general. So that had a profound impact on me. And then the last one was a conversation I had at, at the uh, bar at Happy Hour at Edwards Air Force Base a long time ago when I was, when I was a captain. And so we were talking about, uh, you know, we were coming out of test pilot school, and somebody had said, if you find that, uh, if you're doing a, a, a flight test, you find this airplane's not very good, do you have this moral uh, responsibility to recommend that the airplane not be brought into service there? And so we were kind of talking back and forth, and this old colonel says, and I'm paraphrasing here, you may find that when you're testing that what you have there is a lousy piece of crap. 
And however, what you have to realize is it's probably a less lousy piece of crap than the lousier piece of crap that the guys have in the field have right now. And so therefore, if you give it to them, they will probably be able to fight better with it. They'll figure out a way to make it work. He wasn't the most elegant guy that I ran into there uh, in my Air Force career, but he had a good point. And I remember thinking, you know, that's probably true. People, the better, inter uh, the better combat leaders will figure out a way to take the technology that they have and, and use it to their advantage. And the ones that aren't as good will won't quite figure that out. So based on, the, on those three experiences, I thought, um, you know, maybe there's a way to look at the Battle of Britain there because there were so many things that happened at the same time, technology, uh, historical events, and development of tactics, that if you took a look at that and, you, and started with the outcome and you traced it back through there, you might find some very interesting strings where uh, uh, cause and effect type relationships. And so you might be able to find some very interesting findings from that. So that's what I'd like to talk to you about tonight. First, I'll give you the highlights of the uh, historical timeline leading up to the uh, Battle of Britain. And then I'll talk about the technical timeline or the development of technologies and then talk about the tactical development of tactics. And then at the end, maybe draw some conclusions to show how they inter interfaced and how the outcome of that uh, thing uh, happened the way it did. Um, my view or my thesis here is essentially that most outcomes in uh, air warfare or warfare in general are generally the result of some tactic that was used that was dicta dictated by a technology available at the time. And that technology available at the time was in many, many cases, the result of some political uh, decision or some sort of historic turn of events. And so that's what I'm trying to relate by looking at those three different uh, timelines. Okay, so let's talk about the historical timeline. Um, if, you, uh, if you recall from history, back uh, during the end of the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles was a punitive uh, document there. It caused great hardship on Germany because there were reparations involved. They, uh, they weren't allowed to have an air force. They had to give up all of the, uh, the quality aircraft that they had. And so what that did is it generated a lot of economic hardship in Germany, uh, a lot of resentment there, and that allowed uh, Hitler here to rise to power and take over. And so Hitler took over, then decided he was going to um, uh, take over Europe and, and also, and so he moves into Czechoslovakia there. The British decide to object. And so Chamberlain uh, meets with him in Munich, and he says, okay, you can have Czechoslovakia, but if you sign his paper and promise not to to uh, take any more countries, uh, we'll be happy with that. And so Hitler sees that as a sign of weakness, and so he invades uh, uh, the lowlands and Poland, and then uh, Germany, and, uh, and France declare war, or I'm sorry, France and, and, Britain, and, and England declare war on Germany, and so that's essentially how World War II starts. And so, uh, so things don't go good for the British and the French on the continent, and so eventually the uh, the British, uh, the British Army gets pushed back to Dunkirk. And so they have 330,000 uh, troops there at Dunkirk. And Hermann Goering says, uh, instead of having the German Army uh, wipe out the, uh, the British Army, he says, uh, okay, the, Ger the German Air Force, this is going to be our moment of glory. We're going to destroy the British Army ourselves. So he delays for a few days, and that allows this massive uh, 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 boat lift there to bring the uh, all of the, Ger the, uh, the most 300,000 of the 330,000 uh, uh, British troops back and saves the day for England. And so uh, at the same time, Hugh Dowding has some hurricane squadrons in, in France and he realizes I can't just let these things go down with the French because they're, they're not going to make it anyway. So he brings his squadrons back and more importantly his pilots back at that time. And so now at the, um, at the end, at the, uh, uh, right here in, in June of 1940, 
the British are uh, faced with defending their island, okay, and they're standing by themselves. And so the Germans decide they want to, uh, if, they, if they attack England, they have to gain air superiority before the, uh, the winter comes because they can't do a, a, a cross-channel invasion in, uh, in, in harsh weather, uh, uh, winter, winter, winter weather. So they have to have air superiority. So the, the, the um, criteria for the Germans to win is, for the, is, to deny, is to gain air superiority and defeat the RAF. The criteria for the RAF to win is to just be alive, essentially, in, um, in the middle of September uh, and then hope that the, that the Germans uh, won't, be, uh, won't attack them. So the, so the RAF just has to deny air superiority. So that's kind of what the criteria is for winning and losing. Um, so, the, so the Battle of Britain itself essentially is, takes place in four phases. And the reason it's four phases is because the Germans kept changing their objective, which was part of the reason that they uh, led to their downfall. This first phase here was called the Channel Phase, and that started in, uh, generally agreed to a start on the 10th of July. The 10th of July was the first 100-plane dogfight uh, over the English Channel. The Germans decided that they would attack the convoys going back and forth on the English Channel to try to uh, uh, starve them out and also draw the RAF up and defeat them one-on-one -on -one in the air. So that was sort of their strategy for the beginning. So that doesn't go very well for the, uh, for the uh, Germans, and so they, they are unable to draw the RAF up into the, uh, into the sky to fight one-on-one. -on -one. And so um, this all culminates on, uh, in the middle of August here on Adler Tog or Eagle Day. Hermann Goring says, okay, we're going to force the battle here. We're going to have one big uh, battle, and we're going to uh, knock, knock the uh, RAF out for once and for all. And so he has these massive raids. The RAF uh, comes up to meet him. And uh, at the end of the day, the RAF has shot down 45 of the, of, the, uh, of the Germans, and they've only lost 13. So that doesn't go well. So, um, <clears throat> so that begins the next phase, which is this airfield phase. And so what Goring decides is, we're going, to attack the, we're going to attack the RAF at their airfields, try to knock out as many planes as we can on the ground, destroy their airfields. And so that, work, that strategy seems to be working pretty good. And that's going, uh, and, and they really have the, uh, the RAF on the ropes, and uh, the RAF's feeling pretty bad. Uh, and they have their single worst day uh, sometime during August there. But what happens then um, at the end of this thing is, is a German air crew is coming back uh, at night from bombing in England, and they inadvertently drop a bomb on London. Okay, and so that outrages Churchill, and so what he does, because up until this point, Berlin and London had not been bombed by anybody. So he sends a, uh, sends a bomber, uh, a raid over, and they drop bombs on Berlin. And so that drives uh, 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 Goering and Hitler out of their minds also, because Goering had made this personal uh, guarantee to Hitler that he wasn't going to allow any bombs to fall on Berlin. So what they do is they, uh, they decide to change their... their uh, uh, objective here to London. And so they, so they stop bombing the airfields, they start bombing London, and that essentially uh, is a bad decision because what happens is it allows doubting in, in the RAF there to recover. So they're able to recover their airfields, they're able to recover their support system and get air, airplanes back in shape, and so they're better able to withstand uh, the, the raids. And so that, ha that goes on until Battle of Britain Day, which is September 15th, that's this uh, massive raids, multiple raids, where uh, uh, the Germans are going to try to uh, one last push and wipe out the RAF once again. And that doesn't go well for them either. At the end of, uh, of September 15th, the, the RAF has 60 victories. The Germans have 26. 
And so when they come back, the, uh, the, the German, uh, Hitler decides, okay, well, uh, this is going to work, so we're going to postpone the invasion until next year. And in the meantime, we'll go attack Russia because that seems like that must be a better idea. Um, you know, what could go wrong there? So, uh, so then this last phase is essentially night bombing, and, they continue, and, the, and the RAF or the Germans decide to just continue bombing London at night to try to beat them in submission and break the will. So this is the uh, historical timeline. And that's kind of what the events were. And the battle really took place for about four months there during the summer. <clears throat> so let's talk about the technical timeline, because the technical timeline, I think, is very interesting. Um, this is, uh, I'm, I'm a kind of a right-brain guy, and I try, uh, a big believer in, ma in uh, mind mapping and that thing. And, and so what I did is I took a look at all the technology that was developed on the, on the, RA, on the British side, and all of the technology that was developed on the, on the German side over the years and try to, try to figure out how they got to where they did when the battle started. So let me talk about that. At the end of um, World War there, there are really multiple technical innovations that took place from the end of World War I, which was essentially when airplanes became weapons, to the beginning of the Battle of Britain. Um, two of these things are key, Air, and I'll just talk about those two. Aircraft and engines were one, and then radar and battle management is the other. So let me talk a little bit about aircraft advances. At the end of World War I, you had 100 horsepower engines, or 100 horsepower engines on these flimsy uh, uh, wooden fabric airplanes. And so the designer was faced with, what can I do with this 100 horsepower engine? You know, can I get a few extra bullets? Can I get a second gun on there? Maybe two more quarts of gas. We do, we, the technology development from there up through the beginning of, of the Battle of Britain, essentially where we had the Merlin engine, which is like a, excuse me, a thousand horsepower engine, meant that the designer had the choice of what should I do. Okay, I can put a lot of different things on here. I can put a different prop. I can put a different radio. I can put electronic equipment. I can put more guns or more gas. So the de designer evolves from what could I do to what should I do. And that's, that's essentially what happens between the two wars. Um, okay, so let me talk about the fighters, okay, or the aircraft on either side. So uh, the, the RAF essentially fought with three fighters. They were in the defensive mode, so these are interceptors. They had the, uh, the uh, Hurricane here built by Hawker. They had the Spitfire built by Supermarine, and then the Defiant built by Bolton Paul. Two of these are really good and very effective. One was not so good and, and turned out to be a failure. Now, it's interesting if you take a look at the three of these, how they, the design philosophy that went in, into the Hurricane and the Spitfire are concepts that we still do today. This was essentially a blend of old and new technology. Hawker decided to take the best of what we had from the biplane era and we'll just take some of this modern technology and make it a better, more effective fighter. And we still do that today. We just take existing designs and, and try to upgrade them. And the, uh, the Spitfire was essentially a start from a blank piece of paper, use all the modern technology we have and make the best airplane we can. So let's talk about the Hurricane. That was designed by uh, Sidney Cam. He worked for the Hawker Company, and the, uh, and the Hawker Company uh, put out the Fury here. That was the, uh, that was the sports car of the, of the 20s in the RAF. It was, a, it was a very good biplane, very good fighter. So what Cam decided was, let me just sort of take that and modernize it. And so what he did, here's a picture of the hurricane here. In the blue, I don't know if you can see it, is an outline of the Fury. And so you can see he just took that same design and just made it a little bit bigger and modernized it. 
And the, uh, the Fury here was a World War I biplane, and so its construction was, what, the Hurricane's construction was the same. Wooden bulkheads, wooden stringers, maybe an aluminum truss down the middle, and then fabric covering, okay? And so here's a good picture of a Hurricane that shows, that shows how this is a, a, an upgrade. Everything from here back is a World War I biplane. And so these guys, this is all wood back here and, and covered with fabric. And so these guys right here working on this thing, from the RAF standpoint, they've already been trained. Everybody knows how to fix wooden fabric airplanes. They've already got supplies. They've already got procedures. They've already got support equipment. So it's pretty cheap to have an airplane like this because half of my force is trained already. Everything from here forward is modern, okay? Stressed skin uh, construction, aluminum sheet metal, you got aluminum uh, formers here. You got retractable landing gear. You got a, a closed canopy, and then a, a uh, eight guns in the wings here, and then a spiffy uh, thousand horsepower engine to go up front. Everybody working on the front half of this airplane has to have new training. They have to have new parts. They have to have new uh, procedures, and so that costs money. So you have an airplane that's cheap to maintain. Half of it's cheap to maintain, and half of it's expensive to maintain. So the RAF can afford to buy more of these because because the, t the production and the repair uh, situation is, uh, is not too bad. And so they do. And so the, the, so the Battle of Britain is fought with two-thirds hurricanes and <coughs> one-third Spitfires. So let's take a look at the Spitfire. So here's a picture of the, uh, the Spitfire. It was designed by R.J. Mitchell. That's this guy here. He's with his buddies here at the flight line during happy hour, I think. And so, uh, and so here's the, so the Spitfire is, is a start from a new, uh, start from a blank sheet of paper. It's uh, all metal, every, uh, stress skin design. It's got an uh, aero, uh, elliptical wing there, which is really uh, efficient aerodynamically. Mitchell was a designer who started with Supermarine. He started working with them during the 20s. And so he learned on the seaplanes that the uh, Supermarine company was built during, building during the 20s. In the 20s, there were the Schneider Cup trophy races that were taking place. And this was a race of seaplanes. And a fellow uh, Frenchman named Schneider decided that the world is two-thirds covered by water. Obviously, the, um, the future of aircraft is seaplanes. And so I'm going to offer up a trophy every year uh, for, for uh, countries to win that. And if you win that, you get to keep it till the next year. If you win it three years in a row, you get to win the trophy outright. And so uh, England... Uh, the U.S. and the Italians were uh, participating in the seaplane races uh, every year. And so the Supermarine Company was, with, uh, with the uh, benefit of the RAF, was participating, and R.J. Mitchell was the guy who was uh, the lead designer on, excuse me, their, their seaplane entries. Um, so here's, here's, a, here's an example of the Spitfire, which evolved from the S-6B, which was which one of the seaplane Schneider Trophy racers uh, by um, Supermarine. This is the main spar of the uh, Spitfire wing, and th so this is the, this is the piece that's out there that gives it the most strength. Okay, and so when you pull, we do turns there. This thing has to be strong enough so that the wing doesn't break off. So so Mitchell's view is, I'll make a make a bunch of these leaves here, sandwich them all together into this, put a bunch of rivets in there. I'll make one for the top, one for the bottom, and then rivet a bunch of pieces in the middle. Lots of parts, lots of touch labor. Lots of, of uh, jigs and support equipment. Very uh, long time to make, very expensive, very hard to repair. Now, on the other side, this thing acts like the leaf spring in a, in a car, and so when you're pulling a lot of Gs, the, the wing can flex there and it won't tear off. 
And so that's the advantage of, of uh, this kind of technology. So um, here's another example. This shows a picture of a Spitfire with a wing taken off. And so what you see here is there has to be some sort of a uh, truss or a uh, uh, jig there to hold the airplane. You're going to have to have some kind of a tractor, and then you have to have some guy who's uh, had special training in how to uh, do this. And you can tell by the look on his face he's clearly had special training. Um, but anyway, so if the airplane comes back, you have to have all of this extra equipment. Somebody's got to design this. Somebody's got to buy it. Somebody's got to procure it. Somebody's got to repair it and maintain it. So everything about the Spitfire was expensive <coughs> and complicated. On the other hand, the Spitfire was a 360-mile-an-hour airplane. The Hurricane was a 310-mile-an-hour airplane. <coughs> so you had the trade-off of upgrading and limited performance. Upgrading gives you a cheaper design with the, uh, the racehorse, high-performance, high high-powered airplane that costs a lot more. And so you have fewer of those. So that was the situation with the British. Um, the third one that they, had, that they used was the Bolton Paul Defiant. This design was, uh, was, uh, came out of some thinking after World War I of, of attacking the bombers. The idea here was we'll have a pilot up here and we'll have a gunner in the back here in an electric turret. And so the, the real problem was, um, well actually this was designed because some politicians exerted some influence and made the RAF, uh, and defined some specifications, made the RAF buy this airplane. So who would have thunk that politicians would force the Air Force to take an airplane that they didn't really want? This is, I'm sure this is the only case where that has ever happened. But anyway, the bad, part, the, bad part, uh, the, the bad thing about this was this guy here could spend a lot of time skillfully getting on the, back, on the tail of an airplane, of, uh, of one airplane, and the guy here in the back with a gun could be using all of his gunnery skills on some other airplane. And so there was a lot of problem with crew coordination. It ended up, this, this airplane was really vulnerable. They took a lot of losses, and they, and they pulled them out of the fight about halfway through. So we've got three fighters there. Um, so on the other side of the English Channel, the Luftwaffe fought the battle with, uh, with fighters and bombers. And there were uh, two of them, the ME-109 and the ME-110, both of them designed by uh, Willie Messerschmitt. Uh, one of them pretty good, one of them not so good. So this is, uh, <clears throat> this is Willie Messerschmitt here. I think he's at the, uh, the Nazi company uh, picnic. Uh, with his buddy here for, I think, the three-legged three race. The Nazis kind of gave new meaning to three-legged races, I think. But anyway, he was a really good designer. And so here's, here's the ME-109. And there's a couple of interesting features on here that kind of reveal his design philosophy. Here's the spar. If you remember the wing spar that I showed you on the Spitfire, and you can see what this is, is essentially an I-beam, a flat piece on the top, a flat piece on the bottom, a shear web. And so it, it's very strong. It's like members that are on, um, on bridges. And so this is cheap to make, cheap to repair, and very easy to maintain. And so his view was to maximize that. Now, Mr. Schmidt grew up and learned his design skills during the, the glider technology days of the RAF. After the First World War, all the RAF was allowed to do, I'm sorry, Luftwaffe, all the Luftwaffe was allowed to do was have uh, glider technology. That was the only aviation outlet for people because they weren't allowed to have an Air Force. And so you can see some glider influence here. He's got the long, thin wing. Uh, he's got the narrow, small landing gear here. And so the wing, uh, about the only thing you could put in the early versions of that was bullets. You couldn't put a lot of gas in there, and you, could, and you couldn't put a lot of hardware uh, for the landing gear. Let's take a look at this. In this next picture, I'll show you this uh, firewall here. His approach, um, 
it was kind of interesting. This is the firewall in the front. And so what he does is he attaches the landing gear to the front, he attaches the engine, he puts the cannons in the front, and he puts the uh, machine guns up there. So everything is attached to this. Now the downside of that is the landing gear is very narrow, and so it makes it hard to handle on the ground. And so they lost a lot of these in training accidents and, and uh, landing accidents. The positive side of that, um, positive side of that is shown here. This airplane comes back. There's something wrong with the wing, and they have to pull it off and replace it. There's no extra uh, equipment required to be able to service this thing. This thing can sit on its own landing gear, and so you could move this down the flight line and maybe do some work on the engine while the, while the wing was being fixed. So this kind of a design philosophy was much more manageable, much more maintainable, much more economically feasible to have. And so they bought a lot of these, and they, uh, and they had a lot during the war. Okay. Um, this was the other uh, fighter they had, the, uh, the ME-110. And the idea here was a multi-role fighter. And so what the, uh, the Germans decided to do is let's combine an attack aircraft and a fighter in one. In many cases, when you do that, it sounds good on paper, sounds good when you say it fast, but what you really have is an airplane that can do two missions poorly, as opposed to one that can do one really well and, and another that, that can do the other one really well. So the... Um, let me talk about this first. So the, so the 110 was uh, essentially started out as an escort fighter. It performed so poorly that eventually it had to be escorted by the escorts. And so that one uh, wasn't very good. So, um, and that didn't go over well with the guys flying these when they were assigned to, to protect those guys. So this cartoon captures the bombers. The Germans also had, had fought this with a, a fleet of bombers. And so here's a couple of significant events that happened in the, in the bomber, in the technical development of bombers for the Germans. In, 19, uh, in the 30s, the Cleveland Air Races were uh, being held <coughs> in Cleveland, obviously. Uh, but Ernest Udet was a fighter pilot who was friends with Goering during the First World War. He, after the, after the uh, First World War, he was doing barnstorming, uh, going around the world uh, and um, trying to make a living that way. So he goes to the 1931 Air Races, and Al Williams has his Curtis Gullpock, and he's doing dive bombing demonstrations as kind of halftime uh, entertainment. And so Udet sees that, and he says, and that makes a huge impact on him. It's like that can sell a moment when some major event in, in your life happens. And, but, but Udet is aware of it, and so he decides that uh, that's, the way of, that's the way to go for bombing. Because up until this time, bombing was fly at high altitude, look at the target, drop a couple of bombs, and hope that the wind and the ballistics there don't uh, blow the, the bomb too far off the target. And so it wasn't very accurate. With dive bombing, you'd fly straight at the uh, target, and then you pull out at the last minute, and then so there isn't much of a chance for the bomb to waver off course. And so Udet, that makes a, a big impression on him. And so he eventually becomes the, um, the chief of R&D or technical development in the Luftwaffe because he and Goering are friends. Goering decides he's got a job for him. And so he essentially develops the JU-87, which was a good dive bomber for the Blitzkrieg uh, tactics, but it, was, it wasn't very good. It was slow, it was vulnerable, and eventually had to be grounded but they sank a lot of money in building JU-87s. Now, the other significant event that happens is, uh, is the first German chief of staff is Walter Weber, and he's a very capable general, and so he understands, he's a forward-thinking guy, and he says, okay, we've got to have big bombers, long range, if we want to project power. So he starts these two four-engine bomber programs, uh, the DO-19 and the JU-89, and those are going along pretty good, but Weber is one of these guys who likes to fly, he, li he likes to travel around. 
He likes to fly himself if he's going to go somewhere. So he's at a meeting. He's in a hurry to get to the next meeting in 1936. And so he doesn't follow a checklist in his airplane <clears throat> where he sort of looks at it uh, very quickly and he forgets the step that says take the aileron locks off, of the, off the wings before you take off. So he gets to the end of the runway and he has no control and he crashes and he kills himself. And so that's a bad, that's a bad, uh, uh, that's a bad deal for the, for the Germans because, he's, uh, because Erhard Milch is out of town. Erhard Milch is the Nazi, uh, member for air, Nazi party member for air. He's an advocate of four-engine bombers too, but he's out traveling somewhere. And so Albert Kesselring replaces Weber. Kesselring is a World War I artillery or uh, cavalry officer, and his view is that airplanes are just horses, okay, with, with motors on them. And so, uh, and so we need two-engine bombers, uh, and this four-engine bomber is too expensive, and we don't need those. He has a conversation with Goering, and Goering, and he agrees that the Fuhrer is not going to ask how big our bombers are. He's going to ask how many we have. And so what uh, Kesselring does is cancels these two, and he develop, starts developing two-engine bombers, okay? And so the Dornier DO-17, HE-111, and JU-88 are the ones that go into production that uh, the Germans fight that battle with. This one was called the Flying Pencil because it had a long, narrow fuselage. Any bomber that's called the Flying Pencil is probably not big enough or can't carry a big enough payload there to do any damage. And so that's what's really the problem is they're slow, and they can't, they, they're range limited, and they can't carry an, enough of a payload to, uh, to be effective. Furthermore, Udet tells these guys, I want you to design in, almost after the fact, a, a, a dive bombing capability. And so what that really means for Heinkel is I have to make the airplane that I have stronger, which means less fuel and less payload. So he takes a reasonably decent airplane and makes it worse by his being enamored here with a dive bombing. Okay, so, um, so let's talk about radar or early warning. The story on uh, radar here kind of starts back here around the turn of the century. Somebody realized that if a ship goes by, and I'm listening to music on the radio, the music gets interrupted for a second. And so that led to some people realizing that, okay, maybe we can do something with radar waves in the weapon area. And so what the British do is they put together a group of uh, really smart guys led by Lord Tizard, and they put this committee together to try to come up with a death ray. Today we call it directed energy weapons. But they realized very quickly there isn't enough power, so we can't have a death ray, but maybe we can use radar to find airplanes, and that might be useful. And so what they do is they conduct an experiment here where they take a Hafer bomber out, they fly, and lo and behold, they can find this bomber. And so that leads to the de development of radar. And the reason that that happens, and here's one of those Kinsella moments, is uh, Hugh Dowding, the guy who eventually becomes chief of staff of the, of the, or, uh, uh, the fighter command, uh, chief, uh, chief of, uh, chief of air, air, vice, or air marshal for fighter command, he's doing a tour of duty here as, an air, as the air member for R&D. And so he understands that this stuff is a big deal when it happens. And so he funds the development of radar and pushes it. And that's probably the most important, significant thing is it's one thing to understand technology, but to put money to it and do some experiments and follow through is another. And so, these, so they set up some experiments here at Biggin Hill, they have, uh, which is an airfield there um, in, the, in the south of England. So they set up a tower, they set up a uh, command center, and then telephone lines to these squadrons. And so the, the bombers or the, the targets come in, they're detected by the radar, the, the, uh, the people in the command center figure out, okay, that squadron is the closest, and say, launch them to intercept it. And those experiments go very well. 
And so what happens is the RAF commits to a chain of radars, okay? So they have a netted air defense system. And so uh, this is kind of a cartoon of uh, England here in the English Channel. And so a whole bunch of these, uh, this chain home system, radar system is set up along the coastline. And they organize in groups and they have uh, uh, airfields and sectors for each one. And so they set up a system so that when uh, uh, attackers are coming across, they can find them and they can get the closest squadrons to engage. And so that's the, uh, the, the significant <coughs> event with the, excuse me, take a sip here. And so that's a significant technology, uh, <coughs> this, the story with radar and battle management. So let's take, uh, let's switch now to the tactical timeline. Okay, so the tactical timeline is different. That essentially uh, goes from World War One, fairly primitive tactics, to the Battle of Britain, where things are happening a lot quicker. So at the uh, at the end of World War One, the British came out of that, and their basic fighter formation was the Vic or the three ship. That was largely driven because of technology considerations. They didn't have radios and airplanes. And so the wingmen had to be positioned so that they could see the leader because all the communication was being done with hand and arm signals. So the three-ship VIC is the basic formation that, that evolves out of World War I. Um, another uh, tactic that evolved out of World War I was the Lufbery Circle. So Raoul Lufbery was a captain in the, uh, in the, uh, the American Air Force, <coughs> the U.S. Air Force, or Air Corps, and, um, or Air Service, I guess it was called. Anyway, he decided that if you're, he, he comes up with this idea that if you're being attacked and you need to go into a defensive position, everybody get in a line and then just fly in a circle. And that way, if somebody comes on your tail, this guy coming around behind will be able to get on his tail. So that's a good way to defend. So that becomes a basic tactic also. On the German side, the Germans, uh, Oswald Bolke is the guy who comes up with the first effort to capture best practices for air warfare. And so he comes up with what he called dicta bulky, and that says some things like always fly together, uh, be aggressive, <coughs> stay, come in out of the sun, uh, fly with another guy so you can mutually support each other, and some basic ideas. Unfortunately, he gets killed during uh, World War I, so he can't really develop that too much more. So we go through, um, so we go through the post-war period from the end of World War I to the, uh, to the beginning of uh, World War II, and, and the RAF isn't really doing much. They're kind of treading water during that period of time because uh, peace reigns. But on the other side of the English Channel, the Germans are building an air force and they are developing an army. And so they decide they want to have a practice war in, in Spain because they got the Spanish Civil War going on down here in 1936. So they sent all their uh, troops down there to try out some tactics. And so what they did is they developed blitzkrieg tactics during the, uh, during the Spanish Civil War. And the air piece of that had a number of, uh, a number of ideas. Rapid troop transport. So we'll take, air, we'll take troops from here to there by airplane instead of uh, having to march. We'll use close air support tactics. So when the enemy is up here close to the front lines, our airplanes will be close to them and they will attack the, the enemy that's uh, engaged there. Um, we'll attack the rear areas with our aircraft so that they can't reinforce or resupply. Um, and, but the most important thing, I think, or one of the most significant things that come out of the Spanish Civil War is this uh, swarm or finger four formation. Werner Mulders was one of the uh, chief, uh, or one of the leading pilots down there in the Condor Legion, and he realized that this three-ship Vic thing wasn't going to uh, cut it there. It wasn't the most efficient way to deploy. And so his view was, let's, be, let's fly in 
formations of four and we'll shape and, and we'll position them like the tips of a finger. Two two ships. Okay, so there'll be a leader and a wingman and a leader and a wingman. And this guy will do the shooting and he'll protect them. And this guy will do the shooting and he'll protect them. And so that becomes the standard uh, form, fighter formation for the uh, for the Luftwaffe. And then eventually the British, in, in fact, everybody figures that out eventually. Um, with regard to bombing, uh, the Germans used what they called crocodile tactics. And so that was lining the bombers up in, in rows of, four, of three or five in a long line, which sort of resembled a crocodile. And you can see all these green airplanes there with all these lumps on them. And so the idea was fly close together so that your guns, everybody's guns could mutually support each other. And when you drop the bombs, they'd all fall at the same place and uh, do a lot more damage. So the, um, the, the British understood that the crocodile tactics were pretty, were pretty formative. The aircraft that they were using had armor in the back of the pilots and, and around the engines. And so they, uh, they couldn't attack very effectively from the rear, but they could attack from the front. And um, Let me back up here. Sorry. I'll figure out how to use this in a second. <clears throat> so what the, uh, so what the, uh, the British decided is if I attack from the front there, there's less armor. I have it, since I'm facing the guy uh, eye to eyeball to eyeball, there's a good chance that either I could, I could be more effective with my gunfire or I might be causing panic and break up the formations. The other uh, tactic that, that evolved here at the beginning of the, war, of the, uh, the battle was this uh, Luftberry circle. The, the 110s became, uh, they realized that uh, they were vulnerable, and so they oftentimes they would go out on this escort mission and end up flying in Luftberry circles to protect themselves. What the Hurricanes did is they realized that um, we can't attack them from the rear, but we can dive on them, come down, take a few shots, go under the circle, and then come back up, take a few shots, and go up and down. And so what they did is kind of translate, translated into a corkscrew. So they called that corkscrew tactics, where you're diving and going back up all the way around the circle. The, uh, the, the one tactic that, that uh, or, or the one element, not really a tactic, that, uh, that caused a lot of problems here, or, or I think was a missed opportunity, was the use of drop tanks. Okay, this is an HE-51 that was used during the Spanish Civil War, and they realized it was range limited, so they developed drop tanks to put on this to extend the range. So the Germans had drop tanks at the beginning of the Battle of Britain, but they just never bothered to use them, and there isn't any real good reason why uh, they never did that. Uh, so here's, an, here's a picture of an HE-111, uh, and you can see that this is all glass up front, and the engines are pretty much exposed here. So if you attack from the front, uh, it's going to take a lot of courage on this guy's behalf to watch a guy coming right at him with eight, eight machine guns and, and just keep trudging forward. Okay, so, um, so let me talk a little bit about some of the tactics that evolved during the course of the battle, during the three months there. Um, the RAF at the beginning at Dunkirk, decided to deploy in large wings. So they would send everybody out at the same time, lots of firepower with the idea of doing a lot of damage. The downside of that is everybody runs out of gas at the same time, and so they have to go back at the same time. And the Luftwaffe is sitting there looking, okay, there's nobody in the air, let's attack now. And so they, uh, so they attack during the gaps. That's a lesson that we just never learned. Okay, that happened in Vietnam, and it happened as late as, as Bosnia, where the enemy figured out if you're gonna fly at the same time every day, and go out and then come home and leave gaps in protection, that's when we'll take advantage of that. In Vietnam, you had the, uh, the thinking there that, okay, there's a 7 o'clock go, an 11 o'clock go, a 2 o'clock go, so if I wait, 
I can, I can uh, move my people or my trucks around there at 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock. And that lesson, for some reason or another, was first learned during the Battle of Britain, still, haven't re still hasn't registered in a lot, in a lot of cases. Um, Sailor Milan was a, uh, was a prominent fighter pilot in the RAF, and he's a guy who figured out that, uh, okay, this three-ship thing isn't working, so I'm going to switch to the figure four also. And so the RAF eventually moved over to that swarm or figure four formation also. Milan published a, uh, a ten, his 10 rules for air fighting. And so he captured some ideas in there that became, that are still used today. Uh, come in high, harmonize your guns at uh, 200 or 400 meters so that they're all, or yards so that they're all hitting at the same place at the same time. Um, don't fly straight level for more than 30 seconds at a time when you're in the combat area. You need to be weaving. Uh, be aggressive. Uh, uh, stay above the enemy, come in out of the sun, and so forth. And so the 10 rules for air fighting are, are kind of a formalized way to be able to um, take, uh, to conduct operations. <clears throat> okay, Keith Park was, was the commander of 11th Group in the South. And so he realized the Hurricane is a real stable gun platform, but it's not all that fast. The Spitfire is not quite a stable gun platform, but it's a lot faster and a lot more maneuverable. So he assigned the hurricanes to attack the bombers and the, and the Spitfires to attack the, uh, the 109s. And so that was a, an ad adaptation of limits in technology to a, uh, to a tactical situation. Um, the Germans did realize later in the war that they could, that radar there was having some sort of an effect and so they could come in low level and if they, and if they did that, uh, they, they could a lot of times not be uh, uh, detected by the radar. So coming in low level under the radar was something the Germans tried there during the, the Battle of Britain for the first time. The, uh, the, uh, the last major tactical issue there uh, had to do with this uh, big wing concept. The, uh, the, the, the two groups that were fighting for the RAF was 11 Group in the south, which is closest to the battle, and then 12 Group, which was in the north. 12 Group was led by Lee Mallory, and 11 Group was led by uh, Park. Park's view was get your squadrons in the air and attack as soon as you can and try to prevent the bombers from getting their targets. Lee Mallory's view was take the time to form up in large and big wings and then attack in mass. And if you have to get them on the way out after they drop the bombs, that's okay. They just won't, uh, they just won't have that bomber to come back the next day. Uh, that became a politically charged um, uh, uh, episode, if you will, and it, it, uh, it involved people like Douglas Bader. Douglas Bader was this, uh, was this heroic uh, character in Lee Mallory's group who had lost both legs in an aircraft accident in the 20s and through sheer willpower uh, got artificial legs and he got, talked his way back into the RAF and became a uh, squadron leader uh, there. He was a, bi he was a big wing uh, advocate. There were also a couple of members of parliament in, in the squadron, I think like captain level officers who decided to pull a few political cards and so there was a big tactics meeting, essentially, uh, where they hashed out this big wing th uh, theory. In the end, Lee Mallory prevailed there. He managed to outmaneuver Park, and Park was sort of cast aside at the end of the war, and Lee Mallory became the commander-in-chief of uh, Fighter Command. Okay, so we've, uh, <clears throat> so we've talked about the historical timeline, the uh, tactical uh, technical timeline, and the tactical timeline. So let's take a look now. I think it'd be a lot of fun, right? I, I think it's a, very interesting to take a look at how strings of events happen that interwove those um, those three um, those three timelines and resulted in the outcome. And if you recall, I, I, I think it, there's a lot of places where you can find that these outcomes are dictated by tactics, 
which are dictated by technology and the result of uh, political decisions. So there's two ways to look at how the Battle of Britain was uh, ultimately turned out with the RAF winning. One of them is to consider why did the British win, and another is to consider why did the Germans lose. The answer to that is not necessarily the same. So um, what I did is, uh, <clears throat> is I tried to trace from, uh, from Hitler making this decision not to uh, invade England or to postpone it, all the reasons why, how that happened, and what were the inter interactions that caused that, um, what was the chain of events, and where are there places where somebody could have made a different decision, or just by the luck of the draw, something could have turned out differently. And there's a bunch of interesting um, uh, points there. So let me talk about a couple of those. Uh, let's consider why the RAF won the Battle of Britain. There's two of the, uh, two of the keys, I think, are they had uh, effective use of the limited number of fighters that they had, and they had effective interceptors to fight with. So let's take a look at that um, effective use of the, fighters that, of the fighters that they had. In other words, they had limited number of airplanes, but because of that network, radar network they had, they could, every airplane could be committed to battle and could, uh, have, a, a, could, could have a success, a, a, high degree of, a high degree of probability of finding a, an attacker and having success with them uh, because if they hadn't had the RAF uh, or hadn't had the chain home uh, network set up, the RAF would have had to just put patrols up in the air wandering around just hoping that they stumbled across the bomber. And they probably would have missed them most of the time or they would not have had enough airplanes to go around. Um, the reason that the RAF had, was able to do effective use of, of the limited number of airplanes is because they had early warning. They had early warning because they, they developed and fielded radar. One of the places where that could have uh, taken a, 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 a better turn for the Germans was in 1939. The, the, uh, they, they loaded up a Zeppelin with electronic gear, and they saw these structures being built on the coast, and they flew over there, and they tried to figure out what frequency these guys were operating on to try to get an idea of what those structures were. They were unable to find the frequency that they were operating on, which is like 20 megahertz, which is uh, fair, uh, 20 to 50 megahertz, which is fairly low. So the Zeppelin comes back and said, hey, we couldn't find it. So the, uh, the, best, the, the best and brightest over there decided that those towers were air traffic control towers, probably just to keep people from uh, uh, managing the traffic pattern. So, the, net, so they, the Germans didn't realize that this netted air defense system was a formidable weapon. All of that was, in, uh, w was a result of the success with these experiments, success with the technology, uh, putting together a, a group of, uh, of smart guys to try to figure out how we could exploit that te technology. And this one was, I think, the key there. Uh, Dowding, before he became commander-in-chief of, uh, of Fighter Command there, uh, was smart enough to recognize critical technology at the time that he saw it and do, some, excuse me, do something about it. So you could make an argument that uh, the Battle of Britain was won because if you walk all the way back through here, it's because some guy got mad because his radio music was being interfered with when the ship went by back in 1905 or 1906. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. So let me talk a little bit about having enough fighters. Um, one of the reasons that the, uh, that the, uh, that the Germans had, or the, uh, the RAF had enough fighters, or there's several reasons. One of them was the, um, the Luftwaffe stopped bombing factories and so production was maintained. They stopped bombing factories essentially because the Germans uh, switched targets. The Germans switched targets ultimately because 
some guy dropped a bomb on London at, at, uh, early, on, or early on the battle or in the middle of the battle. And he did that because he had an inadequate bomb site for conducting night bombing operations. So there's a place where technology led to a mistake. A mistake led to an uh, emotional reaction. An emotional reaction led to a change in, in tactics and, and uh, strategy, and the, and the house of cards came tumbling, uh, rumbling down. The other one was the RAF had capable fighters to prosecute that war with. The reason they did, if you look at that chain of events, they had the Spitfire and the Hurricane. Both of those were available because advanced fighter technology was available. One part of that was the Merlin engine. And the Merlin engine and the Spitfire both uh, descended from the S-6B, which won the 1931 Schneider Trophy Race. The 1931 Schneider Trophy Race and the S-6B only occurred because just prior to that, the, the, uh, the Schneider Trophy Race was like the Daytona 500 for cars. And so just prior to that, the RAF was deciding, okay, this costs us a lot of money. I think we ought to drop out of it, spend the money somewhere else. Lady Houston was a widow of a shipping magnate who was a millionaire, and she thought that the RAF was pretty cool, and these trophy, uh, Schneider Trophy races were, were pretty impressive. And so she said, rather than have the RAF drop out, I'll give you 100,000 pounds so you guys can uh, go ahead and enter the race next year. Just step forward. Just thought it was a good idea. So there's one of those one of those uh, Kinsella moments where somebody, uh, one of the most significant events in maybe the hit in, in that whole battle uh, just happens. And uh, a lot of people just weren't aware of that. Um, she did that because they had Britain had had success with the Schneider Trophy races. The Schneider Trophy races were there to develop technology because essentially the world was two-thirds covered by water. So the RAF, so the RAF won the Battle of Britain because the world was covered by two-thirds covered by water. Another argument can make. Okay, so let's talk about why the, uh, the Germans lost, okay? And there really, um, th there's a number of uh, I interactions here that led to that, and um, there were really two reasons. Poor leadership was, was one of them, and the poor leadership essentially caused one bad decision after another after another to be made, and all of those cascaded into a, uh, into a, a poor outcome for the, for, the, um, <coughs> for the Germans. The other one was inadequate fighters. The, the, the 109 was pretty good, but it was inadequate for the mission it was being used for. So let's talk about that poor leadership chain, first of all. The poor leadership was essentially um, resulted in a number of bad decisions. One of them was they didn't understand what a netted air defense system could do. And they stopped bombing the radar sites. And part of the reason they stopped bombing the radar sites is because they kept switching targets, you know, from convoys to the airfields to London. And they did that because they didn't have a good strategy for, uh, for attacking Britain at the beginning of the war. They were just sort of making it up as they went. And that's an indicator of uh, poor leadership. The reason they had poor leadership is because the Luftwaffe was formed of four people making decisions. Goering, Udet, um, Kesselring, and Walter Weber. Of the four, the only really capable guy was Weber, and he managed to get himself killed in 1936. So you have these three guys who are just not up to the task in leadership positions making bad decisions. Part of those bad decisions, including poor materiel decisions, okay, Udet um, having, having this uh, dive bombing thing in, in, uh, impressed on him from the 1931 Cleveland Air Races, besides dive bombing is the way to go. Kessel Ring completely misunderstanding the importance of four-engine bombers and decides to kill that program and go ahead with the two-engine bombers. 
And so all of that was a result of Hitler coming into power and bringing his buddy Goering in there to run the Air Force and Goering bringing his World War I ace UDET along with him. So that chain of events, you could, uh, you could see where, how that traces all the way back to the Treaty of Versailles and having bad leadership in position to make bad decisions. Um, <clears throat> the other one was inadequate aircraft, uh, or inadequate aircraft. The Germans lost because they had unacceptable losses to their bomber fleet. They had unacceptable losses because the bombers they were fighting with had light payloads and they would go over and drop bombs on a target but have to go back again and again. And so if you have more sort, you'd like to be able to go over there, drop bombs on a target one time, take that target out. If you have to do it multiple times, you're putting yourself in harm's way and eventually the law of averages is going to catch up with you. So the, uh, the two engine bombers <coughs> were essentially not up to that task. Um, they also had inadequate fighter escort because the 109s were range limited. They were range limited because Messerschmitt designed them uh, the way he did, heavily influenced by glider technology and a failure to use drop tanks. They were led down that path because they had success with, um, with the Blitzkrieg tactics, which is essentially land war close land warfare. And that gave the Germans this false sense that that the Air Force was configured to be able to be successful because it was successful in Poland and Spain, that it would be successful in England, and that was a different kind of a war, and they were fighting it with a di different kinds of weapons. Um, and all of that was essentially a uh, function that uh, could be traced back to the Treaty of Versailles with no Air Force and limited technology, um, and of course Hitler coming to power. Okay, so. Um, so there's two kind of two conclusions that I, uh, two significant conclusions I think come out of all this. We've taken a look at the three timelines and taken a look at how those things interact with each other and see what that chain of events is. And if you pull on that thread, in many cases it goes way back. <clears throat> it goes all the way back to the World War I era where you find that nail that came out of the horseshoe. And in some cases that's a very small nail. And some things happened that, uh, that some people realized and some people didn't. I think that two of the most significant conclusions to me were you have to have leaders to be successful. You have to have leaders in the military who recognize critical technology when they see it and they act upon it. And I mean act upon it by funding it and pushing and advocating programs. The Luftwaffe did not have that and the RAF did have that. You also have to have leaders in place that can understand technology and how to adapt their tactics to that. So if you have some technology that's limited, don't put it in a position there where it will cause you to fail. If you have some parts of your technology that is, that is strong, like the, the, uh, the hurricanes and the, and the bombers, use that technology with the tactics that will give them the best chance to succeed. Um, so I think those are the two conclusions there. I uh, do appreciate you having, um, paying attention and everybody staying for the, uh, for the whole time and not walking out. Uh, if you have any uh, questions, I'd be more than happy to answer those, and uh, if not, uh, and also be willing to stay afterwards and, uh, and chat a little bit about the subject, but it's an exciting subject, and I'm, I'm always uh, thrilled to have somebody uh, have an opportunity to talk about it. Thank you.